I'm unapologetically fly. I don't wonder why, that's just my attitude. Yeah. Okay, hey, that's just my. Uh, 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 come on. Hi guys, welcome to Glitch in the Code here on Iconic.com. I'm here with a new guest. Um, he's been very kind enough to take his time to come on. Robert W. Sullivan IV, and that's Roman numerals. And he's a historian, philosopher, antiquarian, if, I've sped, if I said that right, jurist, lay, um, theologian, writer, mystic, uh, radio, TV presenter, showman, best-selling author, a CEO, and a lawyer. And he's written five books, The Royal Arch of Enoch. Um, he's in Cinema Symbolism 1, 2, and 3, and his novel, uh, Pack with the Devil. He's also a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason, and um, I'm actually honoured to have you on and to chat with you because it's very rare we can chat to people that, 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 that know this sort of knowledge as well. And there's so much mystique and misinformation and, and generalisation about people that it would be great to course or chat about these things as well so Robert, how did you um first get into into freemason we'll, we'll go from there yeah for first off thank you for having me on your show it's my pleasure to be here um i come from a long line of maryland freemasons my grandfathers and great-grandfathers were freemasons so this was something that always interested me as a child sort of to keep on this family tradition it skipped over my father he he did not join um, and it was something I always wanted to do. Of course, you you are bound by age limits. Um, you cannot join a Masonic Lodge until you are 18. And that has to be you have to have your father be a Mason in order to join at 18. If not, you have to be 21. So, of course, when those ages hit, I was either in high school or college. So it, it didn't present itself. It wasn't until the summer of 1996. And uh, this was a time when I had gotten out of college, but it was before I went to law school. And um, the opportunity presented itself. I was having dinner with my mother and my father with a mutual friend of theirs who I also knew. Um, and he was a mason. He wore the ring. And, you know, we just started talking about it. And I said, look, you know, this is something I've always wanted to do. I've always been interested in, you know, the mysteries. You know, as a child, I watched the old uh, In Search of movie I know, or TV show. I know I'm dating myself there. You know, the supernatural, cryptozoology, things like that always interested me, UFOs. So I said to, said to this man, I said, you know, I'm... I'm interested in joining a Masonic Lodge. Can you help me? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And the next thing I knew, I got the application in the mail. I filled it out. I cut the check. I think at the time it was for a hundred bucks, maybe a little more. And uh, sure enough, the, the, they, they, they formed a committee and I was interviewed by three Masons of the Lodge. Um, and the next thing I knew, I was voted upon and I passed. Um, and at that point, I got a phone call saying that I was being initiated into the first degree in January of 1997. And I went through that, and then I did the catechism on that, and then I proceeded to do the fellow craft and master mason degrees. Uh, this was in May and, and September of 1997. Um, and then at that point, I did the Scottish Rite. Uh, I became a 32nd of the Scottish Rite in uh, October of 1999. So I was able to carry on this family tradition. It's something that, like I said, it, it was fascinating to me. I'm glad I had the opportunity to go through it. I am still an active pre-Mason. Uh, my membership is fully up to date. And I can relate that. Um, if it wasn't for my Masonic membership, none of my books would exist. What I find fascinating is when I, I actually first found your work through a guy called Billy Ray Valentine, who I know quite well, and he put me onto your work. And then I went to the Myth Vision podcast and found the fascinating two-part podcast you did there. So, guys, check out those two as well because they're very, they're really in-depth and fascinating. But also, one thing you brought up there was that the the, the levels of Freemasonry are not in order which I found fascinating. So people will think 32nd degree Freemason. It doesn't necessarily, the orders aren't all in chronological order, are they? 
No, no, this this is correct. Um, and this is a thing that people are often uh, misled on or mis mistaken about. The, the degrees are, of course, in numer numer numeric order. I mean, it's, you know, one through 32, with the first three degrees being the lodge, the, the blue lodge degrees, the master, mason, entered apprentice, and fellow craft. One, well, let's see, entered apprentice would be one, fellow craft would be two, and master mason would be three. And then you have these two high degree bodies here in the United States, the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. Um, I should point out, they are totally voluntary. Um, you, no one forces you or twists your arm to join them. Um, it is completely a voluntary decision. You can join one, both, or neither. Um, there's no prohibition about joining both. Some people think that if you get in the Scottish right, you can't join the York right or vice versa. That's also false. You can join both of them. Uh, the degrees are numerically in order, but the pro where, where this trips up people is the 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 they they they, they go backwards. Um, the, the the end of the Masonic story, the end of the, 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 the story occurs in the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite and the 7th in the York Rite. This is what's known as the Royal Arch of Enoch Ritual. This is where what, is, what has been lost in the Blue Lodge is recovered. It's sort of like a grail quest. Think of it as the quest for the Golden Fleece, something like that. In the Blue Lodge, during the third degree ritual, Hiram Abiff, the legendary founder of the Masons, is constructing Solomon's Temple, and he possesses something known as the lost word of a master Mason. He's murdered, and the word is lost. No one knows what it is. They give you a substitute word. If you go into the high-degree bodies, you will find out that this word is actually recovered at, later on, um, and it's found in the 13th of the York, excuse me, the 13th of the Scottish and the 7th of the York, right? It's called the Royal Arch of Enoch. The degrees that come after those rituals go back in time. Um, so, so they're numerically in order, but they're out of they're out of sort. Um, if you wanted to go in order, you would start at like the fifteenth degree, and then go up to thirty-two, and then go to the fourth through the thirteenth. That would be a better way of putting them in order. So they're out of order historically, but they're in order chronologically. You know, numerically, they're out of order chronolo chronologically is the word I'm looking for. So that trips a lot of people up. So in the end of the day, what you're looking at is the highest really degree of Freemasonry. The, 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 the point in time where the Masonic story ends is this Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial. That's where, that's really the highest degree in Freemasonry, of Freemasonry. And that's where the story ends. That's where this lost word is finally recovered. And if you research it exhaustively as I have, you will discover, and especially in the context of the United States, not so much Great Britain, this is where so much of the symbolism is coming out of when you're dealing with the architecture of the United States, the street planning, um, the, 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 the whole culture of the United States is emerging out of this high degree ceremonial known as the Royal Arch of Enoch. It's incredible. And I know you've been over 20 years of work on that, but just most people wouldn't even know that. And I wouldn't know that until I saw the Miss Vision podcast that it's numerically out. And I say chronologically, but I meant numerically, but it also yeah. chronologically is as well in the story. But numerically, people are kind of think that obviously it goes up, up, and up, and up, but that's not necessarily the case. I find that that, that is just that was like, okay, then now it makes sense. That makes total sense. Um, so the Royal Arch of Enoch, um, the Book of Enoch, I've got behind me as well. It's obviously been left out of the canon. What is fascinating here from the book that you've written is that this ritual was created when the book was not supposed to have been found, at least not translated into English. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. You're 100 percent correct. That's the thesis of the book is the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial is being developed in the mid 18th century. Um, it's something known as the College of Claremont in Paris, France. Um, it is incorporating elements, components of the lost book of Enoch, one Enoch, which is lost 
from Western civilization from about the third, fourth century up until I think it's about 1793, when a Freemason, incidentally enough, by the name of James Bruce, returns to Ethiopia with a few copies. He returns specifically with three copies. One, the most famous one goes to the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. I believe he keeps one, and I think another one goes to a library in France. Uh, it might be at the Sorbonne, but I'd have to go look. Um, the English version, the one in the Bodleian, is not translated until the 19th century. I believe it's 1826. Again, I might be off a couple of years. I'd have to go look. So, it, it, so essentially from the 3rd, 4th century until about the early 19th century, the book is essentially lost to Western civilization. Yet this ritual named after the biblical patriarch, is incorporating elements such as apotheosis, Kabbalah, Christian Kabbalah, the name of God, the idea of lost wisdom, lost antediluvian wisdom that, that is underlying this ritual is incorporated into this ritual, into this ceremonial. So the thesis I put forward is, this is, for starters, it's a historical anom anomaly, but clearly there must have been a Book of Enoch floating around Europe that someone had access to, or at least a summary of it. Um, so I, I speculate in the book, in the Royal Arch book, where could this have come from? And of course, you're looking at people like John Dee, the Elizabethan Magus, who could have had a copy. This seems like a likely candidate. Um, there was a man in Europe who's sort of the continental equivalent of John Dee, minus the angelic magic, named Gillian Postel, who actually, when he was in Rome, met with a mysterious Ethiopian priest who was supposed to have a copy of the Book of Enoch with him. So he's a likely source. And what's interesting with him is he flirts with the Jesuits. Um, he's a Jesuit wannabe. Um, he's buddies with Ignatius of Loyola. And it's the high degree body that is being propagated by the Society of Jesus um, in the mid in the mid 18th century, in the 1740s, 1750s. So the, he's a likely candidate all, as well. So this fascinated me because, I mean, it was for starters. No one ever talked about this before. I mean, even when you read books about the Royal Arch Ceremonial, you will find Masonic historians, even people like A.E. Waite, um, you know, the, the Golden Dawner, the guy hanging around with Crowley and McGregor Mathers. Uh, he gave a lecture where he says, oh, the Royal Arch of Enoch Ceremonial, this is coming from the Lost Book of Enoch. Yet no one seemed to be putting together that the book was lost or allegedly was supposed to have been lost during this time frame. So... Uh, not only is it an anomaly, but then I go forward and say, not only is it an anomaly, but it's also from this ceremonial that the, essentially, for lack of a better word, that, that this ritual is essentially birthing the United States, for lack of a better word. So it's, it's a very, you know, detailed study, but I'm real happy with the way the book came out. And like, like you, it fascinated me. It's incredible that the, the, the times and um, that change over as well with that. Um, so the ritual itself, that does have kind of like a feeling of a, a kind of um, going on a journey, a little bit Knights Templar to the Solomon's Temple type thing. Is that involved in this at all? Or am I way off there? No, no, you're not way off at all. The ritual, the ritual changes over the years. Um, the, the, what, what happens in the ritual, and I, I'm going to have to backpedal a little bit because I'm going to have to give you a little background on the ritual. Like I said, in the third degree Blue Lodge ritual, the Master Mason degree, Kiram Abiff has this secret word of a master mason. It's the name of God. It's what's known as the Tetragrammaton. These three fellow craft masons conspire to extract it from him before the temple's complete. He won't give it up, and he's murdered. So the word is lost. If you fast forward to the ritual in the, the Royal Arch Ceremonial in the high degrees, as it starts out, the ritual, the, the, the word, the, the, the word, the lost word is discovered in a subterranean treasure vault on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And one of the earlier workings of the ritual is actually to, discovered by Scottish Knights Templar. So you have the Templar link there. 
um, the, the high degree ceremonials are based on something known as the or Ramsey's oration. It's the oration of a man by the name of um, Andrew, Andrew Michael Chevalier Ramsey, um, who gives this oration. He's living in France. He's a very complex, interesting figure. But he's the guy who links masonry to the Crusader Knights, for lack of a better word. He, he, he always says, if you, if you read the legendary histories of masonry, they always go back to the Gothic cathedral builders and the biblical people and, you know, the guys building uh, uh, the Temple of Babel, things like that. Chevalier Ramsey is the first guy to say, no, the, the Freemasonry, as we know it, is coming from these Crusader Knights who interacted with the Saracens, you know, discovered the remnants of these mystery cults like the cult of Osiris, Mithras, the Aleutian mysteries, and basically imported it back to Europe and it became Freemasonry. So you have this Knight Templar um, in incursion into Masonry because of Andrew Michael Ramsey. Uh, again, another Jesuit sympathizer, uh, supporter of the false uh, of the young pretender, uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Interesting character. Um, in the ritual, the the subterranean treasure vault is discovered by originally by Crusading Knights Templar. It's later changed when it's discovered by Jewish temple builders. And what they're doing is the Jews are in exile in Babylon under the aegis of a Babylonian emperor named Cyrus the Great, and he dispatches a Jewish governor named Zorobabel name literally means the heart of Babylon, back to the Holy Land to build, to rebuild the temple. Solomon's temple, of course, has been sacked, destroyed. So as they're preparing to build the second temple, known as the Temple of Zerubbabel, this is the one that Jesus raids in the New Testament, you know, when he turns over all the tables, um, including, you know, accusing people of idolatry. This is the second temple. Um, when they're clearing the rubble to build the second temple, they find a, a trap door in the ground and they spring it, and it leads to this subterranean vault where this sacred name of God is kept. Um, so you definitely have a Knights Templar uh, theme going on um, with this with this uh, ritual, um, with who it's linked to and what it's born out of. I'll just end on this. If you've ever seen the first National Treasure movie, this is the ritual. The discovery of the Knights Templar Masonic Treasure Vault beneath the Holy Ground. In the movie, it's the church in New York City, um, which is a reference to DeWitt Clinton, who was a former mayor of New York former governor of New York State. Uh, he was a very prominent royal archmason. So if you ever watch the first National Tre Treasure movie, you're literally watching this Masonic ritual play out for you um, on the big screen. So the, so the filmmakers then, we'll come on to filmmakers. I don't want to spend all the time on, on Freemasonry. I want to talk about, well, we will, but obviously how it goes into the cinema. So the people the people making those films, the Spielbergs, the George Lucases, will have a definitely a connection into that. I think I saw that... Spielberg was a was a, it was a Jesuit um, uh, scout when he was a kid. I think there was there's an element there. I've seen some research into that. But these people obviously had the knowledge of this type of thing. So how does it get from there, and why do they put it into films? Why is it there? Is it because if you don't know it, why would you need to see it? Is it why was it in there? Right. Well, it's a, it's a multi layered question. You have some filmmakers who are masons. You have some that are not. Uh, a lot of the major Hollywood studios were founded by Freemasons. Um, so Hollywood in of itself is a Masonic product, for lack of a better word. My research into this has led me to believe that the, the incorporation into film, into cinema of occult themes, occult iconography, occult, you know, undercurrents, I, I find it, I don't find it necessarily a sinister occurrence. I think the filmmakers are doing it to elevate the film into a form of mythology. They're, mytholo they're mythology makers, and by including this material in their films, it's elevating it, basically making this, the, the cellular almost like a spiritual medium almost. Um, that's 
my interpretation of it. Certainly, there are some very darker aspects to this, um, especially when you get into ideas of, of movies being prophetic. Um, it certainly is happening, and you have to account for it. I, I, I'm not in. The, I'm not on the. In the in the in the group that thinks there's a bunch of filmmakers sitting around with crystal balls or summoning demons to get future information, I don't dispute the fact that there that film can be prophetic, but my take on it is probably a little bit different than a lot of other people's. I I, I it, it comes from the world of Plato and and people like Emanuel Schwettenborg and Jakob Berm, and what they essentially and Carl Jung of course, and what they essentially put forward forward was this idea that the creative experience is spiritual. And by creating something, and of course the movie is a highly complex creation, you're actually tapping into some sort of divine ether, um, some sort of uh, supernatural uh, undercurrent. And you are subconsciously, and that's the key word, is subconsciously placing things in your film that you may not be aware of. Um, now, in some instances, let's make no mistake, there are clearly symbolisms and things and numbers that are put in the films to reference other things, Easter eggs, call them what you will. But when you're getting into the idea of film as prophecy, whether it be 9-11 or Three Mile Island, um, there's a couple great examples I could give you. Um, my, my, my take on it is I think you're dealing with something much more supernatural than you are with the mundane. Um, and in my opinion, just my opinion alone, I think that to me makes it much more interesting. But that's my take on it. So that's fascinating. So did you, would you think you were drawn to Freemasonry because of this kind of like a, adventure, escapism journey? There's kind of like a real kind of adventure to it all, a sense, of, a sense of wonder, a sense of the mysteries. Would you think you were drawn to that as a writer as well? You were naturally drawn to that anyway? You know, it's a great question. My, I would, the way I can best answer it is this way. When I joined in 1996, I basically wanted to join because it was just something that I wanted to do. Like I said, I come from a long line of Maryland Freemasons. What I kind of got out of it wasn't really what I thought I was getting. It's a subjective question. Each, each Mason is going to give you a different answer than I will. What I got out of it was it taught me to see things symbolically. It, it, what, I, what I came to understand was the rituals were symbolic. They were encoding things. Um, not all was what it seemed to be. Um, the, 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 especially this is ca a case in point with the third degree, and you'll find it in the Royal Arch uh, rituals as well, is the, the, the melodrama that is being enacted out, the idea of the um, murder of Hiram Abith, his resurrection, you know, where have we heard this before, um, is symbolic of something. Um, and that's really what I, I, I fascinated me. But it, the, the fascination and the interest in the research came after I joined, really not before it. I mean, when I joined, I didn't know what I was getting into. I had joined a college fraternity um, when I was at Gettysburg. And interestingly enough, um, the fraternity house I joined, the ritual was written actually by a Freemason. So I kind of knew what I was in for a little bit. Um, but when I joined, you know, I went through the rituals and then I started doing the research independently, reading the people like Albert Pike, the Manly P. Halls of the world. And this had started for me when I was in Oxford a few years earlier. That's when sort of, Richard, the, the pieces started coming together. The puzzle pieces started interlocking. And I could think, OK, you know, now I understand why, you know, when I see Hermes outside a library, now I know why that pagan god is there. Or when you walk into the quad at Christchurch at, at, at Oxford, you know, you're not going to find Jesus Christ or, or anything like that. You're going to find the pagan god Hermes on a fountain. Why is it that part of the Thames that flows through Oxford is named Isis after the virgin goddess? This was stuff that started coming together for me. Why does the Bodleian Library have a dome on it? Um, why does the Capitol building in the United States have a dome on it? 
this was stuff that I was able to start piecing together. And this, you know, was really the kernel that grew into the, you know, Masonic research that became the Royal Arch book. And then it kind of had this um, sort of side effect that I didn't anticipate. That was I could see the sort of occult undercurrents going on in cinema. So, you know, when I when I first came on the show, I said, you know, none of these books would exist but for my Masonic membership. And I really mean that because if it wasn't for Freemasonry and teaching me how to see things symbolically, um, I would no way those books would not exist. I would no way in no way ever be able to interpret or analyze a movie through an esoteric or occult lens. I find it fascinating that I come from a conspiracy background, but it's the same feeling of wonder, of understanding and looking symbolically at the world, and the world is completely different. It's a different language. It's a totally different language, and I think it's a very similar language. Obviously, they have massive overlaps as well, and probably people are absolutely like dumbfounded that someone who's into conspiracy is speaking to a Freemason, but that's the point, is that that these are very, very similar kind of understandings. Um, I wanted to speak before we moved on about the role of the Jesuits in formulating the high degrees, because you spoke about something in, on the Mythogen podcast that was amazing to me because it's always confused me. Um, the Jesuits had a hand in creating the high levels of Freemasonry, but separate from the Blue Lodge Freemasonry. Can you talk about that in the right of perfection? What happened there with the, um, with the Roman Catholic Church and the, the Church of England? There was a was a counter-reformation, I've heard you, you call it. Just if you could explain that, because that explains a lot that there's two different things going on here, and maybe a lot of people are getting your Freemason down down the lodge, the blue Freemasons, um, people that you'll know, completely mixed up with some of this mythology, some of these scarier things that we hear. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Um, the the Society of Jesus, what, what first has to be understand is the Society of Jesus existed when it was created it is a shadow of itself of what it once was. For lack of a better word, um, when they came on the scene founded by Ignatius of Loyola, um, they, they are essentially Europe's version of the CIA or Smirsh, you know, if you're a James Bond fan or, you know, the KGB. They're essentially the, the spy ring for the Vatican. Um, and when Martin Luther instigates the Reformation, it's the Jesuits at the Council of Trent who are put in charge of something known as the Counter-Reformation. This is what's known as, also known as the Catholic Revival. Um, and it's a militant. It, it, it's, it's to undermine Western civilization, undermine the Protestant you know, the Protestant Reformation. Um, I mean, the Spanish Armada, you know, was a Counter-Reformation attack. Guy Fawkes, the gunpowder plot, which you guys just celebrated, um, Guy Fawkes was a Jesuit agent. Um, the arch enemy of the Jesuits since time immemorial has been England because of Henry VIII tossing out the Roman Catholic Church and forming the Church of England, which of, which of course is essentially the Catholic Church, only it's Protestant, and instead of the Pope, the head of the Church is the monarch. That's the way it is to this very day. Um, so the, the Jesuits have always had it out for um, England, without question. And what happens is uh, they use the Counter-Reformation um, to, to undermine, to undermine Western values. They, they attack um, Germany. You know, they, they, they do all sorts of things. Uh, the Great Fire of London, 1666, was the Jesuits and the Counter-Reformation. As the Jesuits are wreaking havoc with this, it becomes clear to this sort of what you would call Rosicrucian spy ring that surrounds Queen Elizabeth I that you need a Protestant version of this. Um, and, and this is what is hinted at with the Rosicrucians, which is this essentially proto-Masonic conspiracy group that probably didn't exist, that, that, is promoting, that is promoting enlightened religious reform. It's completely running counter to the Jesuits. 
Um, and, 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 and it ticks them off so much that they actually put out, the Jesuits actually published pamphlets that the Rosicrucians are devil worshipers, things like that. The two main strains of hermetic thought that go into Rosicrucianism are John Dee, who was Queen Elizabeth's court magician, of course, an astrologer, and a guy by the name of Giordano Bruno, who was this wandering mystic, um, who was very anti-Christian, um, very anti-Jesuit, said Christianity was nothing but a ripoff of the Egyptian sun cult, um, eventually burned at the stake by the Jesuits in 1600. Those are the two guys who are sort of driving this, what you call impetus, to create this mystical Protestant society to combat the Jesuits. And it's hinted at with the Rosicrucians, and it really doesn't take form until the Freemasons come on the scene in 1717. And it has been argued, and I think quite correctly, that the Jesuits are a reaction to the Counter-Reformation, that this is basically the English Protestant mystical version of the Jesuits. And if you look at if, if you really come to understand the material, you understand that Freemasonry and the Jesuits uh, run incredibly parallel. They, uh, you know, engage in... Um, they use the sun as their symbol. They are a very mystical order, both of them. So, of course, when Freemasonry comes on the scene, this is the Blue Lodge. This is degrees one, two, and three. They come on the scene in June 24, 1717, which is, again, a solar reference that has to do with uh, uh, the, the summer solstice. Um, June 24th is, is St. John's Day. Um, this is when the sun is in its apex in the northern hemisphere, a sun reference. Um it's, it's years later after this, in the mid-1730s, that you have the Jesuits again back at their old dirty tricks with the Counter-Reformation, and they propagate the high degrees of Freemasonry to do battle with the Blue Lodge Freemasons. And the high degrees of Freemasonry run counter to the le lessons learned in the Blue Lodge. The Blue Lodge is very democratic, egalitarian. The high degrees are Roman Catholic. They're Kabbalistic. They speak of things like divine monarchy. Um, and essentially, they are created by the Jesuits as a vehicle to restore the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England. So essentially, the Scott, and, and this is the rite of perfection, which you mentioned, this morphs into the Scottish rite 150 years later. And the Scottish rite is essentially a relic of the Jesuits and the Counter-Reformation. Of course, it exists. There's no Jesuit incursion anymore. But um, the Scottish Rite and the Rite of Perfection becomes very popular in the United States because during the Revolution of 1776, France was our greatest ally. This is where the high degrees come out of. They come out of Paris, France, College of Claremont in the 1750s, 40s, 30s. The high degrees of Freemasonry, as you can imagine, are not popular in Great Britain. Why? Well, who's the mortal enemy of the English since time immemorial? The Jesuits and the French, of course. So high degree Freemasonry never takes off in London and its surrounding environments, environments, but it's highly popular here in the United States, largely because of France's um, allegiance with the United States during the American Revolution. So the, the high degrees, the right of perfection is essentially created by the Society of Jesus as a counter-reformation ploy to combat Blue Lodge Freemasonry, which was essentially a reaction to the Jesuits in the first place, if what I'm saying makes sense. It makes sense. So how do you go from a Blue Lodge to one of the high degrees if they're kind of, they were initially counterintuitive to each other? What happened to change well, that? Well, in England, yeah, in England, in England, they don't take off. In England, it never happens. In the United States, the high degrees of Freemasonry are midwifed um, into the United States from France through Haiti um, by a guy named Etienne Morin. 
um, and the first um, Scottish Rite body is set up in Charleston, South Carolina. The high degrees, when they come to the United States, it's a hodgepodge. They, some Blue Lodges accept them. Some Blue Lodges do not accept them. Some Blue Lodges only accept parts of them. Some Blue Lodges only accept, you know, this and that. And it's a mess. Um, it, it's a total, it's a total, total mess in the United States. Um, what eventually happens is the Scottish Rite is finally established in uh, March, uh, excuse me, in May of 1801 in Charleston, South Carolina, and it is accepted by all the state Grand Lodges. Then you had something called the York Rite, which was created, which was influenced by the high degrees. And this is propagated by a man named Thomas Smith Webb. Um, and this is what's known as the York or American Rite. This is strictly, um, this is what sort I'm looking for. You will find, you will not find this outside the United States. This is strictly a United States phenomenon, the York Rite or the American Rite. Um, and he propagates uh, something known as the York Rite of Freemasonry, which incorporates these two main bodies of high degree Freemasonry, what are known as the Mark Master Mason and the Royal Arch. He adds on to that the Knights Templar degree, which is the end body of the York Rite of Freemasonry. And that is a unique body because Blue Lodge Freemasonry is deistic. You do not have to have be member of a specific religion to join. In order to join a Blue Lodge, you cannot be an atheist. You have to believe in a supreme being, um, and that's it. You know, you can be a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian. In the York Rite, in order to become a Knights Templar, you have to be a Christian Freemason exalted to the Royal Arch. You have to be a Christian. So it separates itself from most bodies of Freemasonry in that it does have a religious requirement. Um, so, so the high degrees are very popular in the United States, not, and, and they were very popular on the continent of Europe, not so much in Great Britain. I think what, oh, yeah, no, carry on. No, carry on. no, no, and I was just going to say that in order to join the high degrees, you have to be a Blue Lodge Mason. Um, you, in order to join either the Scottish Rite or the York Rite, you have to be a third degree Master Mason. And then if you are that, you can join either the Blue, excuse me, you can join either the Scottish Rite or the York Rite or join neither. It is completely up to you. <laughs> See what so what's quite incredible because our minds initially just go, I want to see black and white, good and bad. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's kind yeah. of every nothing's that simple, and everything no. is there. Is like people are like, well, who's the good guys and who's the bad guys? We're only watching films. We want the good guys and bad guys, and it's clearly look things morph over years, and there's elements of this and that. We see this with the information here, and I mean the world's mad, and I want to get your take on what's happening in the world later on, as as a, from your background right now, because obviously clearly something's quite ridiculous and quite not pleasant is going on but all the information comes from this side and that side and it all counts and it's, it's a mess chaos it's supposed to be chaos and I, and I think people want some clarity and that's hard to find when we're human beings and things are all over the place right now so that's cleared up quite a few things i think for, for people i mean how do you kind of react in the world knowing what you know and how do you kind of function in the world because not many people know the things that you know well, let me just add on one other thing to kind of what you're saying is you're right. There is no black and white. Um, what, one, of the main, one of the main things that I find um, that is constantly tripping up researchers, um, and especially the ones in England, and I'm not saying this to put them down or anything, is they act or write under the idea of a universal, universality, um, that Freemasonry, Blue Lodge Freemasonry is, a, is the same across the board. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, United States Blue Lodge Freemasonry looks entirely different 
than Great British Freemasonry and and the reason and and Freemasonry in general. And this, of course, has to do with the revolution. Um, I'll make a long story, try to make this incredibly short. In in England, okay, in England, the Blue Lodge Freemason, Freemason, the 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 third degree Mason, when he obtained that degree, was often considered the most loyal subject to the crown. This comes from a guy named William Preston who wrote a Masonic Monitor. But what happens in 1776? Well, the the English monarchy is tossed out over here. Um, We don't have it. So, so, So how is this reconciled? So in the Blue Lodge, the English monarch is replaced by George Washington, where he becomes this Masonic godfather of the United States, and you'll find no mention of the English monarch. So... You know, it, it, there's always a difference. Um, you know, and again, in, in, in America, we do not have a monarch. Um, we have an elected a representative. So in England, the, 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 the Blue Lodge teaches that, the, high, that the, the, the Blue Lodge Mason is the most loyal subject to the crown. In the United States, it goes a different way, where essentially the Blue Lodge Mason, and then once he joins the high, the high degrees, because there's no monarchy here, the philosophy that's underlying all of this is that the Mason in the United States is a Kabbalistic magician. That he's basically a citizen priest king of his own, you know, that he's a king of and of himself. This is a completely separate dichotomy than what's going on in England. And so many people are tripped up by this. And it's the same thing with the high degrees. They, they want to apply a universality to it. And it, it doesn't exist. You have to look at it, you know, state by state, um, you know, country by country, because they evolve over differently over time. Um yeah, I mean, the stuff going on today, you know, I mean, I, you know, it, it is a strange time to live in. I've, I've always, uh, to me at this point, I am at the conclusion that, um, this is just me speaking, uh, without question, I believe we are in a cuts phase astrologically where we are saying goodbye to the end of Pisces and welcoming in this new age of Aquarius. That seems to be what's going on, to my opinion. Um, and like I said, I, I've done other shows about this where I've been asked similar questions to the similar question to the one you just asked. My my interpretation was, and I kind of admit that I was a little wrong on this, um, when you're dealing with these astrological ages, I always thought the age of Aquarius was about 100, 100 to 150 years away. I've, I've, I've evolved on that. I think we, we are in it now. I think the age of Pisces is probably over with, and we are now beginning to see um, Aquarius, you know, ascend on the horizon, as it were. were and I, I think that's what you're seeing with these people these breakdowns of society. Um, and of course, this is what seems to happen when these astrological ages shift and turn over. Um, you know, you have this sort of, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, um, disintegration, um, chaos. Um, and that, that seems to be what we're going through right now. I, I've said to someone the other day, I said, I'm 50 years old and I kind of, I'm happy that I'm at this age because I don't know what this place is going to look like in another 60, 75 years or so. No, it's frightening. Um, it's frightening when you've got children as well. My little boy's 18 months and it, it is frightening. I'm 40 years old and I just think, I, I was thinking today, go back 25 years, the internet was just birthing but not really there. And what yeah. a massive change in 25 years we've gone through. And not for the better in many times. I mean, it, it, nothing wrong with technology. could have been, it's fine. Maybe we're doing this. There's some great things about technology. But also the humanity is, is slowly getting getting pulled apart and we can see that and and i think there's various factions fighting over over where it's going to go i I can see that from the research i do and again it's not black and white it really really isn't um moving on to that i mean that's absolutely fascinating um let's move over to the film stuff now then so when did you start noticing it that it started appearing in films and what did your first reaction thinking hang on a minute this is there's there's 
black and white checkerboards everywhere. And I understand that that from National Treasure there and Luke Skywalker, which I found fascinating. One of the Luke Skywalker one. I'll let you talk about that and what that means, and then Darth Vader and all of that. Because what did you start thinking? Hang on a minute, it's in films and everything. What was your initial understanding? Right. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because you mentioned Star Wars, because that's kind of where it started for me. Of course, this was a, a movie that I grew up on, um, you know, Star Wars. I mean, you're talking about Generation X's Holy Writ uh, is Star Wars. And I remember being in high school and learning that the the Star Wars mythology was born out of a book by a man named Joseph Campbell, who was a comparative mythologist known as the hero of a thousand faces or the hero with a thousand faces that's sitting right here on my shelf. And um when I finally got around to looking at that book and looking at these components, I mean, it was like, my God, I mean, you know, everything he's talking about, these mythological po- components, whether it be Perseus, you know, that are going through, it's, it's being duplicated in Star Wars. It's mythology just being rebranded and retold. That fascinated me. Um, the thing about the book, um, the Campbell kind of sidesteps, I don't know why, and I, I suspect because he may not have known, is he, he talks about comparative religion in this hero and how he goes through all these similar adventures and, and things happen to him. But what he doesn't tell you is who is the hero with the thousand faces. And of course, it's Apollo. It's the sun god. Um, and of course, this is what you get with, you know, with whether it be Jesus Christ or Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter. It's the same. It's the same story. It's the commoner person being plucked from the populace to go on this adventure to overthrow a dark, evil lord, whether it be Satan, you know, you know, the Death Eaters, the Sith, Darth Vader, call it what you will. I mean, and it's like you said, even the name Luke Skywalker, the name Luke comes from the Latin lux, meaning light. I mean, what light walks across the sky every day? The sun, right? So this is kind of where I was tipped off to this. And then it was with the national. I mean, you know, I I looked at it and, you know, I kind of kept it on, on the back burner. And then it was really with the National Treasure movie where it was this retelling. And this was completely synchronistic because when National Treasure came out, I was sort of wrapping up or kind of putting, you know, started, you know, really at that point was sort of going through the finishing phases for the next couple of years of Royal Arch. When I saw National Treasure, um, that's when it really dawned on me. I thought, oh, my God, I mean, there's the ritual right on the screen for everybody to see. And what was so synchronistic about this and so fascinating was at that same time, you had the Da Vinci Code movie coming out. Um, and the movie, the Da Vinci Code, incorporated a lot of these same themes with the, the number 13 and the quest for enlightenment and knowledge and the number 13 appearing. Um, so I, I was like, whoa. So I was like, you know, there's definitely something going on here. And, I, I, you know, what, what, what happened for me was when I was finishing off Royal Arch, um, I was dealing with and I was writing about these very dense, complex Masonic histories, philosophies, characters from history some people have probably never heard of and what 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 i really wanted to do with the royal arch was end it in the modern day and i thought well what a better way to do this than to let's talk about some masonic themes in movies so in the royal arch book the final chapter is called so dark the con of man which is of course lifted from the da vinci code where i talked about national treasure i talked about being there uh i talked about excalibur the john borman movie where king arthur is again the sun god you know the the knights of the 12 houses of the zodiac merlin is hermes trismegistus i got into all that borman's um version of king arthur i think is one of the best ones for the solar symbolism with king arthur um so when I wrapped up Royal Arch and I did that, I mean, this was something that I still wanted to talk about because I was seeing these Gnostic themes in movies like The Matrix, Fight Club, films like that. So I parlayed that into the next three movie books. And when I was doing that, I wrote a work of fiction. And the one thing, uh, Richard, that I'll say about the movie stuff, the movie um, analysis 
that I just love. Um, and to me, this is what makes it such a fascinating and worthwhile study is, um, and I've been on other shows saying this, you may have heard it before, is um, it's, not like a guy, it's not like a video of Sasquatch or a videotape of U a UFO where, you know, is it a UFO or is it Venus? Is it really Bigfoot or is it a guy in an ape suit? With the movie stuff, I mean, I can point it out to you as clear as day. I mean, if we're watching The Shining together and I say, watch Jack Torrance hit the axe 12 times, you know, hit the door with the axe 12 times because 12 is a repetitive trope in this movie, you can count it off. I mean, if I say, watch Wendy and Danny take 12 turns in the hedge mage, you can count it off. If I say, watch Jack throw the ball against the wall 12 times, you can count it off. So you, you can see it. I mean, when I if you watch Black Swan and you look at the poster of Winona Ryder and you see the date of February 12th, it's there and it's there for a reason. There's no ambiguity with it. That, to me, is why this film, the, the study of the occult themes in the films is so worthwhile and so interesting. So what, when they've put these things in the films, are they just to, in, in your opinion, to signal to other people who would understand it, or are they to actually, there is more power to this going into the film, as you say, some, coming from somewhere we can't see. There is a actual technology here, for want of a better word, a science here that, we, that we've lost, that they know that they're putting into these things and uh, coming down to energy, if we're all energy. Are they putting something in there? They understand the science of symbolism, the science of putting this energy into their films and how that will embed in the, maybe the subconscious brain. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, it's not, it's like you said, it's not as easy as a one, two, three answer. You have to look at the film and you have to look at the sophistication of the filmmaker. There are different, you, you will not find a, you know, let me put it to you like this. I mean, there are Gnostic movies, there are alchemical movies, there are secret society movies. You want, you know, if, if Stanley Kubrick uses repetition in The Shining, don't expect it to find it in Eyes Wide Shut. He uses something else. This is the hallmarks of the expert occult filmmaker is they know when to use the symbolism. They know when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate. They know when used to when repetition. And again, believe me when I tell you this is more than just a symbol popping up on screen. They use color schemes, music. The very actor or actress that can be employed can convey a cult, an occult meaning. Perhaps it's used to draw in their baggage from another movie and implant it subconsciously. Yes, you are dealing with archetypal imagery buried in the subconscious. It can be there for manipulation. It can be there for enlightenment. It can be there for both. That's debatable. Um, it is without question that they are doing this. It is without question what it's, what it's there. Because like I said, you can see it. I mean, I can show it to you. I mean, this is what I wrote three books about. I mean, if you read the books and you want to pull the movie out and, you know, pause it, skip around, you're going to see it as surely as I wrote about it. Um, but no, the, these filmmakers are expert with this. And I would just like to say this, and this is very important, and this is very key. Um, this is nothing new, okay? This is nothing new to Hollywood. Hollywood is the latest iteration of this. This occult symbolism, these themes, these archetypes, the use of occult undercurrents goes way, way back. OK, we are dealing with it in Hollywood presently. You will find it in the works of the 19th century American Renaissance authors, Edgar Allan Poe, Herman Melville, uh, Emily Dickinson. You will find it in the works of uh, Mozart. You will find it in the works of J.R. Tolkien. Richard Wagner, certainly William Shakespeare, or whoever you want to call him. Um, this is something that is old and has been around for a long time, but Hollywood is just the latest iteration of it. So 
a lot of it seems to be astrotheology to me, especially like anything in the Bible. It seems to be sun, the, the sun god worship. It, it really does. I mean, I'm not saying the people are, weren't real people with Jesus. There wasn't a real Moses person. But certainly elements of their character, elements of their narrative have been lifted from older Zoroastrianism stories. I mean, clearly that. Is this a way of... A, of hiding that information to carry it on for generations to come so it gets found later on once you can decipher it maybe in a few hundred years but a way of doing it so it doesn't get destroyed by people that if they knew that this was happening it would get wiped out is it a way of carrying secret information um yeah, hidden I, in plain sight basically yeah i th i think i think you're onto something there it clearly clearly like you said could there have been a historical moses or jesus sure the stories in the bible are correct you're correct they're astro theology um and you will find different things in different places like for example um some of the numbers um whether it be 2210 in the book of luke um that has meaning um so yeah you definitely so some people have argued and i don't i don't necessarily dismiss the argument um, where they say, you know, where when they were creating the New Testament, the story of Jesus, it was archetypal, that they were just relying on the old sun god legends of Osiris or Mithras, you know, or the Aleutian mysteries of the Desiree, the dead and resurrected solar god man, as it were. I, I don't, I, I, I will go with that for a while. You know, I can buy into that, that maybe it was just archetypal, you know, maybe, you know, like the way J.K. Rowling turned Harry Potter into a sun god. Maybe she didn't know it was just archetypal buried in her subconscious mind. That's certainly possible. Where I would break with that, though, is there is clearly an embedding um, in the in the Bible, in the, both the Old and the New Testament, of the, like you said, of the Platonic year, the procession of the boxes, where you clearly have the fire symbolism with the ram around Moses, you know, the Piscean fish symbolism around Jesus. That, to me, strikes me as an intentional hand. Um, that, I mean... It, if you want to come at me with the, the solar motifs, maybe archetypal and subconscious, okay. But when you're dealing with, with the embedding of, of Aries and, and, and Aquarius and Pisces, uh, I, mean, I mean, the whole story of Jesus is nothing but fish, fish and water symbolism. That, that, to me, is definitely intentional and smacks of a hidden hand. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think you are dealing with sort of this secret society, passed down lost wisdom that is, is, is just, like you said, it's lost. Um, and, and people rediscover it, and I guess people like me rediscover it and write books about it to try to enlighten the populace. I mean, look look at fairy tales. I mean, again, you're dealing with the sun worship, you know, whether it be Little Red Riding Hood cloaked in the leaves of autumn, the red, who gets swallowed up by the winter months, the, the wolf, only to be liberated at the vernal equinox by the blonde-haired, blue-eyed woodsman, you know, who, who frees her. Um, nursery rhymes, Jack and Jill went up the hill, you know, the sun and moon meeting Aquarius only to fall down in the, in the winter months. Um, this, again, is all, you know, the movements of the sun, the moon, the heavenly bodies, um, basically the entertainment uh, back then that gets assigned the personalities, but then the meaning gets lost. Um, and this is, again, what you have going on in the Blue Lodge. The, the rituals are there, but no one understands what they were. They, they are. They don't understand that Hiram Abiff is, is the sun god who gets killed and resurrected. I mean, how many times have we heard this before, whether it be Harry Potter killed and resurrected, Jesus killed and resurrected, Osiris killed and resurrected. I mean, it's the same motif over and over again. Um, and it, you're absolutely correct, correct Richard. It's, it's there, but the meaning has been lost. Um, and, and people rediscover it and write books about it and try to enlighten people. Um, but, you know, some people don't want to hear it. But again, this was one of my motivating factors to, to write this stuff. So it seems like the Bible and the, the canons 
they functioned in the same way that films films movies do and even music does and music videos especially today of holding this information deep at a, at a um esoteric level as opposed to an exoteric level it was a way of keeping these stories narratives this information these truths possibly going whilst hiding under a level of of this happened in real life and in films they're doing the same thing it functions the same it's a way of it's a safe place it's a safekeeping for information throughout the ages until someone's ready to find it would that be be fair to no. say I know. I, th- I think you're right. I think you're right, because this this is what I thought, you know, when I joined the Masonic Lodge, this material became very aware to me. Um, you know, I had sort of had this conscious, you know, revelation of this material. Um, and you're right. I mean, when, when you become conscious of it, you'll begin to see it. Um, you know, you'll begin to see the parallels with, you know, Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, Jesus, a Neo in the Matrix. He's another one you could throw into this. Um, and you will definitely begin to see this sort of lost occult wisdom surfacing um it's there it's just it's there but it's like you said it's kind of buried beneath the surface um and for me this is just me speaking this was sort of you know one of my motivations was to write about this was because i could identify it um you know when i watch a movie you know i can see it i mean i can see you know i i have the eye for it i mean i can see what the filmmaker's going for maybe not on the first viewing but if i watch it more than once and it has an occult undercurrent i'll find it i mean at least i'm confident that i will um, so for me, I'm conscious of it. And again, this is one of my reasons for writing my books was to bring the unconscious, bring the, you know, bring this to light as it were. Um, so a person, if they read my books, will have a better understanding of this. We'll have a better understanding of the archetype. We'll understand what, where this material comes from, understand that it's older than time, that it is archetypal, that it is astrological, astrotheological, dealing with the sun, the moon, the heavenly bodies. Um, I mean, if you read if you read the guys in the Renaissance, like, you know, Pico or Della Mandarola and Ficino and Bruno, they'll be the first to tell you all the archetypes come from the heavens. What do they mean? It's the sun. It's the moon. It's the constellations. It's the zodiac. Um, this is, you know, they're closer to God than we are. Um, so this is where this stuff is coming from. So, you know, yes, it's in film. It is without question. It's there. I've written three books about it. And I would just end on I would just add the, the comment on um, being a lawyer. I would not, I mean, the standard that I hold myself to is if I'm skeptical about something or I'm not sure about it, I leave it out. I only put in material in my books that I would be more than happy to present to a judge or jury. This is fascinating because I, I a couple of weeks ago, I, I shot a, um, a Halloween special in a house. It's called the, the UK's most fascinating house. And all of these rooms in this house are different, like completely different times. But there's a lot of esoteric stuff going on. And I said to the author, um, sorry, the author, the creator of the house, who's also a writer, he wrote a book about it. So this house isn't about the rooms, is it? It's a, there's an esoteric under level of here. And it was literally like a book. And he looked at me and he nodded off camera. And he had a writer's room at the top, which was like a 1950s um, writer's room with a typewriter. And I said, that's God's room, isn't it? That's where you write to the world. You sit in there and you write the word. And he looked at me and nodded. And it was an esoteric. And there was Baphomet stuff here and there. And there was quite clearly um, quite clearly Osiris stuff here. But that was more obvious stuff. But what I'm saying, um, my point is that you've got a book and you've got a fiction book. I know your last one that you've written, which is A Pact of the Devil. Without giving it away, have you kind of used this sort of thing in that? Is there multiple levels to understanding that? Or is that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. All, all my books um, I believe in code, deeper meanings and different things that I hint at. 
Um, so yeah, no, as, as a creator myself, um, I am oftentimes even, you know, when I write or when I edit, I'll be thinking, Oh, you know, did I just do that? And it is, it's almost like sometimes a subconscious thing that you put in your book and you go back and look at it and think, Oh, how great was that? And it's like, you didn't even intend it because it was coming out of the collective unconscious, but no, as a writer, yes, I do incorporate, uh, themes and occult undercurrents in my books and I leave it to the reader to try to find them out. And that's fascinating. What a kind of creative thing of being able to watch someone and seeing if someone comes back to you and goes, did you mean that at that level, that at that level? I mean, that's nothing more like we do that as creative people, as children, as we want adventure. And there's such a little an adventure about that. And that's that, that's fascinating. because all of, We were chatting about that. And I'm thinking, has he written different levels into this fiction book? Because <laughs> as someone who's into this stuff, I couldn't, can't imagine that you wouldn't think of that that way of writing that it would have three or four different levels to it and it's also it's not only in the fiction book it's in the other books as well i do incorporate stuff in there as well which is fascinating so anyone who's listening to this go out and get the books because there's multiple levels in in this as well which i i think is obviously where the bible the canons are written where these films are made where every piece of art is multi-leveled people like I was a big fan of Michael Jackson as a kid and I listen back to his music now and I could see the multiple levels in his music and he used to hint at it saying, listen to the music, but he would be three or four levels down. He also was a Knights, Templ- uh, Knights of Malta as well, which not many people know, um, but there was multiple levels to these things and it's a great way of carrying this, this information and uh, I think it's fascinating. Thank you for your time for chatting about these things. I'd love to chat to you again because we've just scratched the surface, but where can people find your books? I'll put all the links below. Where can people find your books, your website, and get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Richard, for having me on. It was my pleasure to be here. And again, anytime you want to have me on, four or five months from now, I'll be more than happy to come back. Uh, my website, my name, my website is my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth. So that's my website. It's www.robertwsullivan and then the letter I, the letter V, for the fourth.com. Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com. Uh, there are links there to buy the books. They are sold on all the major online retailers, whether it be Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Um, and that certainly goes for the UK or Canadian versions of Amazon. Uh, you can get the print edition or you can get the ebook. Both are completely available. Um, there are links there um, from my website to purchase them. Uh, the website has information about me. It has information about upcoming shows I'm doing, um, podcasts that I've done. Certainly this show will appear there. Um, and again, it's a very easy site to navigate, www.robertwsullivanivy.com. Alternatively, you could just go to Amazon, click on books and type in the book title, Cinema Symbolism, Royal Archpack with the Devil, whatever you want. I'm sure it'll come up in their own search. So yeah, uh, but the easiest way, just go to my website again, robertwsullivanivy.com. And again, thank you, Richard, for having me on. I'll be more than happy to come back um, whenever you want to have me back on. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate your time. To the very last question, guys, I'll put all those links below. So please do go out and check out, and we'll have Robert back on again in the, in the new year as well. So, Robert, the very last question, what is your favorite film, and why is it you love it so much? Boy, that's such a tough question, because there's so many movies that I do like. Um, the one movie that always I always thought was very, uh, very good. I mean, I love so many movies. I love the original Star Wars. I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I, the one that always I kind of come back to is I love Fight Club, just because I love its nihilism. And it's sort of destruction of things that people hold sacred um, that are ultimately kind of silly. Um, so that that's always been one of my favorites has been Fight Club uh, by David Fincher. I believe it came out in 1999. <laughs> And you talk about that being a Gnostic film, which I've never seen that as a Gnostic film, and I still can't get my head around how that would be a Gnostic film. So let's talk about that next time as well, as well as Blade Runner and the Truman Show, which are a little bit more obvious. But Fight Club, to me, 
I'd love to hear how you've, you how you've kind of spoken about that bit of Gnostic film. Guys, please go over and check out um, Robert's work. I will put the links below. And thank you for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm unapologetically fly. I don't wonder why. That's just my attitude. Yeah. Okay, hey, that's just my... Uh, uh.